The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. My name is Jessica Lane, and I'm the pastor of ministry engagement, the associate pastor here at the Church at Ross Bridge. Delighted to be with you. This is the second week in our series for skeptics. Show of hands. I'm kidding. Don't. Y'all are such suckers. <laughs> Listen, we are all skeptics at some point about this faith stuff. We're all somewhere on the continuum of doubt and working away from doubt and towards assurance. Um, all of us at one time, all of us at any time, right? So no show of hands. We'll just assume we're in good company this morning. Last week, uh, Pastor Nathan shared with us from the book of Hebrews the definition of faith according to the author of Hebrews. Um, and I would like for us to read it together. Now, this is the version that I learned growing up, the New Revised Standard Version. So that's what we will be reciting together this morning, because I say so. All right. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Excellent job. Um, Pastor Nathan also shared with us five points along the faith journey continuum. Um, And I'm guessing that anyone who's worshiping with us this morning, whether uh, on site or those of you online, by the way, if y'all are watching church from Israel, shalom. (laughs) Yeah, they said shalom too. Um, Five points along the continuum of the faith journey, okay? First up is the cynical opponent. This person is this, okay? Hostile towards the Christian faith, unwilling to have an open mind toward considering its merits. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know it. Okay? We all know someone like that. We may have all been someone like that. Skeptical non-believer is indifferent to or has unresolved questions about faith and has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, but is open to consideration. I like this person. I like an honest skeptic. Uh, The joyful convert has placed their faith in God through Jesus Christ and is eager to learn and grow, accepting new claims of faith with joyful enthusiasm. I'll tell you, when I was growing up in the, uh, let's see, I I came to faith in the sixth grade in uh, the non-denominational Christian uh, vein, if you will, tradition. And so we had a summer camp. And at this summer camp, man, we got all kinds of excited when somebody decided to give their life to Christ and get baptized in that way over-chlorinated pool. But it's like when they came up out of that water, they were suddenly on the prices right. I mean, they were like this for, oh, sorry. Still getting used to my Britney Spears microphone. They were uh, bouncing off the walls for such a long time that, you know, you, you find a seasoned Christian will sit back and, and think, and, and I, I hate that we're this way, but we're like, yeah, I'm going to just give that one time to settle down a little. It's true, though. I mean, who has been annoyed by a brand new Christian who is just like on fire for Jesus? You're glad they are, but that's the joyful convert. We're glad we have them. The questioning disciple. This is who I want us to focus on today. The questioning disciple has moved to a phase where they feel comfortable wrestling with Christian beliefs without abandoning their faith. They're not going to read something, uh, a na- particular narrative about Jesus that they had never encountered before and it's going to rock their foundation. They're not going to hear something from the Old Testament. You know how we hear about the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God, where God was angry, and they're going to be like, what? The God of love was angry? Well, now I just, I don't know. That's rocked my boat. No, the questioning disciple is 
is okay to wrestle with the questions without it completely undermining they are their foundation. And then the resolute saint, number five, is humbly committed to the Christian belief and behavior, trusting in, in God, the places where their understanding falls short. Now, even with the resolute saint, when we talk about faith here, we are not, I repeat, not talking about blind faith. The questioning disciple has journeyed with God uh, along the path of belief for a while now, okay? And I'm ha- I have a hunch, and I'll tell you why in a minute, that many of us fall into the category of number four, the questioning disciple. There are certain truths about God and about our purpose in Christ, in the life of Christ, that we are not ready to ponder. We're not ready to wrestle with until that mountaintop high of the joyful convert does settle down into a faithful obedient, steadily trending, you like how I use it, steadily growing, um, practical relationship with God. One that um, is in awe of God, but hasn't com- still has their feet under them, and they're in a place where they can grow, okay? C.S. Lewis defines it this way. Faith, in the sense in which I'm here using the word, is the art of holding on to the things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. This is nothing new. We do the same thing in a romantic love relationship, right? You fall in love. Everything is, (laughs) and, you know, you get married, and nobody likes to talk about it, but the honeymoon phase does come to an end, and at some point, you settle into a, this is what you bring to the table, this is what I bring to the table. How do we best compliment one another? Oh, look, wow, we rock at this, we suck at this, we rock at this, we suck at this, and you move along, right? That's how you grow. And so C.S. Lewis is not completely off when he uh, likens our, um, our faith to that. But he's not asking us. God's not asking us. C.S. Lewis is not asking us. Your church is not asking you to believe blindly <clears throat> in anything, but to hold on to what your reason, the, God, the brain God gave you, once um, assented to um, and hold on to it despite your changing moods. The 4th and 5th century theologian, Augustine of Hippo, one of history's greatest Christian thinkers, defined faith as trust in a reliable source. Remember I said that. It's going to come up later. There'll be a a test on this material. So the questioning disciple believes it is reasonable and reliable to believe that an intelligent, loving, powerful being is the cause of our existence. We believe it is reasonable, reliable to believe that we are set apart from the rest of creation this beautiful, amazing, intricate creation for a higher productive purpose, a calling, and that our life here has meaning. Why do I have the impression that so many of us in this room right now currently fall into the questioning disciple category? Well, I'll tell you, we just started last week. We launched our four-week study of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. 17 people Uh, registered and came to our Sunday evening class. 21 people registered and came to our Wednesday night class. I did some quick math. Don't laugh. My husband will laugh because I'm not the mathematician in the family. Really not the mathematician. (laughs) That is 38 people. From the uh, worship attendance on site between early service and late service that we had last week, those 38 people represent 15% of the people that worshiped with us last Sunday. So 15% 
of the people that were gathered in the house of God here to worship with us are seeking better ways to articulate their faith by studying the armchair apologetics of a stuffy British academic who was transformed from avowed atheist to the foremost Christian writer of the 20th century. Many in our class have already expressed, and they weren't even nice about it, their disdain at the fact that C.S. Lewis is difficult, challenging, uh, really hard to understand, to read and to understand. As I said, he's a stuffy British academic. <laughs> he just is. And so we don't live in the 1940s, and we're not Brits. And so we do have a little bit of a hard time understanding him, but we're muddling through it together, are we not? But I think he was right uh, when he said in book two of Mere Christianity, we've come to, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. As a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? I mean, honestly, lifelong Christians, don't raise your hand, even though I ask you to, don't. Uh, lifelong Christians, can you remember the last time you were intellectually argued out of your faith? No, probably not. You just drifted away. You just got out of the habit of the spiritual disciplines and then lost that fire. It happens. It happens in a love relationship too, um, which is a great analogy, unfortunately, for us. More often than not, when we experience a season of absence, as I like to call it, from the vitality of the Christian life, there hasn't been an intellectual assent to the objections about Christianity. What we doubt isn't the truth of who Christ is, but how large a portion of our hearts he occupies and how deeply that matters. So, again from Hebrews, let us unswervingly uh, hold to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I'd like to suggest this morning, we're going to run through six things. If you're taking notes, leave room for six things. Six things um, we as questioning disciples may do so that we can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Let's pray. God, we thank you for getting us to this space. Thank you for helping each of us to set this um, sacred holy time aside, um, make it a priority. Um, and Lord, I pray that we bring you authentic worship this morning. I know that you have a good word for us this morning. I pray that you will speak through me, if not through me, despite me. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Number one, fight your fear. Yes, doubt is sometimes, oftentimes, born of fear. And we are not the first nor the last to struggle with fear-born doubt. Jesus Christ's inner circle of friends who traveled in ministry with him for just over three years, who'd seen Jesus restore sight to those who were born blind, who'd seen him restore leprous, withered limbs to health, who'd seen food for thousands on several occasions appear from scraps, who'd seen Jesus command the wind and the waves, raise the dead to life, banish the forces of darkness from the minds and bodies of those overtaken by them. All these miracles and so many more. 
and they doubted the truth of Christ as the Son of God and the promised Messiah over and over and over and over again, right up until the very last moments that they got to spend with Christ before he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Matthew's Gospel tells us, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Let me set the scene. This is right before Jesus departs the earth. He gives us uh, what we have come to know in Christian circles as the Great Commission, right? He gives them the Great Commission. Um, they have watched all the miracles. They have experienced the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, and they still doubt. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What a great promise. Um, I wish that as we left for work in the morning, we would turn back to our loved ones and say something like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a commission for the day. It's amazing. Um, and yet they doubted. I like uh, the way... Sorry. I like the way the message, this is not a word-for-word -word paraphrase, but word-for-word uh, -word translation, but this is a thought-for-thought -thought paraphrase. The message says, meanwhile, the 11 disciples were on their way to Galilee, headed for the mountain Jesus had set for their reunion. The moment they saw him, they worshipped him. Some, though, held back. Not sure about worship, about risking themselves totally. And this is the part I love. Jesus, undeterred went right ahead and gave his charge. And he goes on with the, go ye therefore. What's wonderful about that is that's exactly what our doubt does to Jesus. Nothing. He's undeterred. Thank you. Thank you for that. C.S. Lewis says, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Can't you just hear those 11 disciples up on the mountain in Galilee as Jesus is giving those parting words? Amen, amen. Praise you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Did he just say all the nations? But we love you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Uh, I hope Matthew's been taking good notes because what, now we have to do this when he's leaving? See, it isn't the truth claims of the faith that we're questioning as questioning disciples. It's the depth of the implications of those claims that we don't fully grasp. Number two, keep God's word in your heart. Let me ask you, why are our young people um, so convinced that everything they see on social media is real? Because it's trending. Yeah, because they see it everywhere and they hear about it from everyone. The Apostle Paul challenges us to flip the script. He writes to the faithful in Rome. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Hey, fellow Christians, adrift upon the sea of meh. If you're a questioning disciple, uh, or have been a questioning disciple, what's popping up on your Hulu, your Netflix, your HBO Max, your Prime Video? <laughs> what podcasts are you listening to on the way to and from work. Now, I'm not judging. I'm not, and I'll tell you why. 
I've learned a lot about Norse history, the Northmen, the Vikings, from all the movies and series and documentaries I love to watch. I can't get enough about the Vikings. It fascinates me because although they had some rudimentary runes and a monument here and there, you really don't find it. They didn't memorialize their history or make a record of it in any way. So everything we've learned about the Northmen and the Vikings, we've learned through the eyes of other ancient civilizations who encountered them and got their butts beat by them, and, and wrote about it. But for all the interesting knowledge that I've acquired in my binge research, and I've been diligent in my binge research, all that media consumption has done little in the way of increasing my faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying that a questioning disciple or any other Christian can't consume popular media. I'm not saying it. But I wonder, if faith comes by hearing, the message of and about Christ. How better might we be served if every once in a while we set aside time, say with our families or our friends, to go watch, for instance, The Chosen. You heard of this series, The Chosen? This is an in-depth, very well-produced inside look at the ministry of Christ as portrayed throughout the Gospels. Seasons 1 and 2 are available on Netflix, Prime Video, and Peacock. Check it out. Recently, a few of us gals headed over to, we met up at the Lux Theater right here on Lakeshore to watch the first and second episodes of season three at the movie theater. That was pretty exciting. These stories are told from the perspective of each of the individual disciples as they are coming into their relationship with Christ. So it's, they, there's a lot of backstories, and it's really, it's, as I said, it's beautifully produced. And hey, as an aside, um, in The Chosen, the guy who plays Jesus, he's a wicked sense of humor. Jesus is funny in this thing. You really should watch it. And I must confess, the apostle uh, Peter is not entirely damaging to the eyes. There, I said it. <laughs> what? Check it out for yourself. The Word of God is much more than ink printed on paper or the Garamond font on your computer. The writer of Hebrews tells us God's Word is living and active. What does that mean? Sharper than any two-edged sword, it penetrates to the point that it separates soul from spirit. Can you define soul versus spirit? That's how penetrating God's Word is. And the joints from the marrow is able to judge hearts and intentions. There's a group of pilgrims, including our lead pastor, Nathan Carden, who are walking the steps of Jesus in the Holy Land right now. They will never, ever experience Scripture the same way again when they return. Not all of us can cross the pond to Israel, but if we believe that God can and does meet us when we read Scripture, that God uses those prophecies, those narratives, those amazing historical figures, those promises to speak living and active intention, purpose, guidance, direction, joy, and hope into our lives. Why aren't we spending, why aren't we trending more time with our Bibles? Why am I not spending more time with my Bible if I really believe it? We can keep God's word in our hearts once we've planted it and watered it, and tended to it there. Number three, remind yourself of God's faithfulness. Now, recently I was doing a bit of, I'll just call it spring cleaning. My husband would call it something else. When I get in these moods, 
Normally, I just leave stuff everywhere, and, you know, you live out of the laundry pile that you're having that kind of a week. That happens, okay? It's real life at our house. But when I get in these moves, I mean, I am gutting the utility closet. And Brent's like, kids, uh, let's go to lunch. Mom's doing a thing. <laughs> let's stay away for a few hours. So uh, it, that's what I need to do when I need to clear my head, right? I clean. I came across, if you know me, you know this is not like me at all. I don't do flowers. <laughs> I came across this journal, and it took me a minute, and I picked it up and looked and opened it and fell out a couple pictures. Um, That's my mom giving me a bath in the kitchen sink. I mean, who doesn't have a picture like that, right? But why was it in this journal? Then a couple more pictures, my mom in a prom dress for some reason. My parents were Amway distributors. They're a little bit weirdos. I'm going to just put it out there, a little bit weirdos. It's interesting, though, this gratitude journal she gave to me in the Christmas of 1997. That's way back. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to share with you, she got it started, says Jessica, December 25th, 1997, and then she wrote in the beginning. And I've got the picture there if you can see it. She writes, allow me to start your journal to let you know some things I'm grateful for. Number one, your dad, my soulmate and my purpose for 26 years. Number two, my dad, the man that gave me understanding of patience, understanding, and character. Number three, for you. The joy of watching you grow, and this joy is renewed every day. Number four, I'm grateful for each day that you still live close to us. Our family is small, and it's hard not having close contact with them. Really cool. This put a dent in my cleaning process that day. That closet did not get organized because I sat my butt on the floor and read through all these journal entries and relived my traumatic 20s. Well, I did. I'll be locking this up later. This February 8th. Next month, just a couple weeks away, will be 20 years since we lost my mom to lung cancer. So you can imagine how special it was for me to unearth this amazing gift from 25 Christmases ago. As I read through my journal entries, reliving honestly some painful memories, it caused me to recount the many ways that God has been faithful in my life. And so many times that faithfulness did not come in a form that I expected, that I hoped for, or even recognized at the time. Why? Why is it that hindsight is so 2020? It is only most of the time with hindsight that we can see so very clearly God's provision in our lives. It's because, I'd like to suggest, we don't adhere to number four. Keep your focus on God, not on your obstacles. As he often does, the Apostle Peter gives us an outstanding example of what not to do. Bless his heart. (laughs) Eager Peter, once again. Um, In Matthew's gospel, I'll set the scene. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 from scraps. It's been a very long day of teaching and preaching. Jesus encourages his disciples to get in the boats and go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And he says that he's going to go dismiss the crowds and he's going to head back up the hill to have some time of prayer alone, as one does when one is Jesus Christ. And so he does that. The disciples set out in the boat across the Sea of Galilee, and there kicks up, as there does, a little bit of a storm. Um, Just before dawn, Jesus decides to join them out on the water as they're furiously trying to get back to the shore. So he's, this is when Jesus walks on water. Here he goes. 
he's walking on water. And then the boat, they're like, row, row, it's a ghost. What is happening over here in this section? It's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, 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 peace, it is I. Okay, so Peter's like, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come. Jesus says, come. <laughs> Peter's like yanking his dress up. Woo! <laughs> he's walking on water. And he's looking at Jesus, and he's so excited because Peter is so eager, and he's the yes man, and he's, he's Jesus' bestie, right? So he's going towards Jesus, and then all of a sudden in verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Okay, that's us. Sometimes Christ calms the storms in our lives, and sometimes he beckons us to join him within them. When Jesus joins us within the difficulties of life, instead of removing them for us, our lifeline is to focus on him, not on the difficulties. Why is that such a hard, hard lesson for us to learn? Every time we do it, he is faithful. We see another example of this in Luke's gospel. Several of the female disciples have just discovered the empty tomb of Jesus, Easter morning. And Luke takes us to a scene where two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles away. And Jesus joins them on the road and inquires, hey, fellas, what are we talking about? They, they literally chastise him for being, how can you be the only visitor to Jerusalem and not know the events of the past few days with this Jesus of Nazareth? <clears throat> They're so immersed in the details of everything that's happened, questioning the purpose of it all, scratching their heads. They're oblivious to the fact that the risen Christ is indeed walking along with them. They gave him a brief summary of who they understood Jesus to have been, but then they said that he was crucified by the authorities, which is a shame because they, they were kind of hoping that he would be the promised one from Scripture to redeem Israel. Then Jesus chastises them right back. He, start, he begins with the writings of Moses and goes through all the prophets and shows them exactly how this Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled everything that was ever written about the Messiah and demonstrating all of that. Then it began to be dark, and the fellows were like, hey, it's not safe, it's getting dark. Why don't you come stay with us? We'll resume our travels in the morning. So they do that, and we pick up in verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. How often does that happen? We just come to an aha moment and change scene. <laughs> it happens. On our lifelong walk with Christ, there are always going to be things we don't fully understand. The busyness of life, the relentless pull of schedules and activities and projects and deadlines, all of these things are a thief to our face-to-face -face time with Christ. That time that nourishes us and opens our eyes to what he's been trying to share with us all along. When we remember that God is really in control, no matter the circumstances, and keep our focus on him, it increases our faith and drives away the doubt. Number five, remember faith is a choice, not a feeling. George Fuser lent me a book this week, and I read it in its entirety in like 12 hours because I'm a nerd like that. And I found some really neat stuff I wanted to share with you. So in his essay, Faith Needs Foundation, 
which he put in a compilation of essays called Reflections on the Existence of God. Christian writer and apologist Richard E. Simmons III writes, I sometimes wonder how well we know ourselves, particularly the deep thought, thought and intentions of the heart. I do not think we realize how feelings, desires, and emotions have such a great influence over the decisions and the choices that we make. They often will cause us to bypass our logic and our reason and lead us away from what is true. What I've concluded is that although our emotions and feelings may be real, they are unreliable. Remember I told you to remember what Augustine of Hippo said. Faith is trust in a reliable source. Our emotions are not that source. (laughs) Can we agree on that? Okay. C.S. Lewis uses the example of a young man encountering a very attractive woman uh, of his acquaintance who he knows from firsthand experience to be a gossip. (laughs) But when he has occasion to spend time one-on-one with her, he wants to confide something in her so as to procure more alone time with her. He's overcome by the excitement of having the pretty young woman all to himself, even if only for a moment. And he says to himself, perhaps she'll behave differently this time. And so he shares secrets with her, only to be made a fool later when she exposes him. Our emotions, desires, and feelings can and often do cause us to bypass our logic and reason and lead us away from what we know to be true. I'd like to visit the uh, gratitude journal for a moment again. What I didn't tell you is that in the Christmas of 1997, I was 24 years old. I had been married for about a year and a half. It was not going well. This was an example of uh, what we in Christian circles call uh, unequal yoking. Uh, My husband was not a believer, and I was sinking into a depression. I was withdrawing and becoming a recluse. If you've known me for five minutes, you know that, Amy. (laughs) I stopped attending worship. I quit going to small groups. I stopped reading scripture. I stopped wanting to read scripture. I focused on my obstacles. I felt sorry for myself. Um, And I took my eyes off God, my sustainer. I let my emotions skew my faith in what I knew was true, that God had redeemed me, that God adored me, that God had granted me particular gifts and opportunities uh, for particular work in his emerging kingdom. And I had begun that work, and I was excited about that work, and I drifted away from that work. I didn't lose my faith. I just forgot it. I was adrift in a sea of meh. I knew that God was real, that God loved me, created me for a purpose, gave me hope and joy. What I forgot was that his love is much bigger than my seemingly hopeless situation that my purpose in him had much more upward momentum than my downward spiral into self-sabotage and self-loathing and depression and doubt. My doubt that I would ever be welcomed back into the arms of Jesus was rooted in my fear that I had given God just one too many reasons to start moving away from me. And then if he did, I would never catch up with him again. Had I still been grounded in a local congregation, Had I still been faithfully meeting in a small group with other disciples, I would have been surrounded by God's love and encouragement to help me through navigate this difficult time in my life. 
I would have been digging into the mysteries and challenges and jewels of God's word. I would have been rolling my sleeves up and taking part in missions and outreach um, opportunities and service. And my mother, as they often do, knew me well. She knew that I needed to be reminded who and whose I was. And so this gratitude journal was the beginning of my road back to God from my season of absence. I made the choice to believe God's vision for my life, to remember my faith, and even though I didn't yet feel reconciled to God. Number six, be around others who will encourage your faith. Friends, small groups is where the magic happens. I'm not just saying that because I'm the pastor that's in charge of life groups, although small groups is where the magic happens. John Wesley knew what he was doing when he insisted that the congregants of his Anglican church belong to a very, very, very small band, a larger but still small um, class, and a larger but still intimate society that met together regularly to encourage one another in the faith. It was all outside of Sunday church. One of the 38 folks participating in our four-week Mere Christianity class has identified themselves as a skeptical non-believer. They've been worshiping here with their family for years, and they've served in a variety of ways. But it is in this small group space that they feel most free to honestly and openly pursue their questions, share their doubts, and investigate the truth claims of the Christian faith It doesn't matter how spectacular the preaching is. And I would say that if Nathan were sitting right here on the front row, rather than rowing across the Sea of Galilee, which is probably what he's doing right now with the other pilgrims from our church. Small groups, hiking ministries, Bible studies, life groups, stage building ministries, mom's book clubs, men's coffee fellowships, That's where the work of discipleship can take place, where it's safe to grow through missteps, to question presuppositions, to accept earnest encouragement, to discover and deploy what your spiritual gifts are, to experience the warmth of a community of flawed folks wiggling through the implications of a life lived to Christ together. We were never meant to do this alone. If you take nothing else home today, take that. I shared with you four things my mother listed in this gratitude journal that she was, for which she was most grateful. She did include one more, a fifth one that I didn't share with you earlier. Allow me to do that now. She writes, number five, I'm grateful there is a God for us. Me too. Pray with me. God, thank you for making yourself known in general revelation through the splendor of your creation. We can do nothing but be in awe of the intricacies and the wonder of all that you have made. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will use that general revelation to inspire us to have the eyes to see your specific particular revelation to each of us. Lord, I pray wherever we are on the continuum of faith journey, that you will continue to beckon us um, and invite us forward and onward. I thank you so much for um, the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, being the promised Messiah that he put on skin 
and showed us the way to live in harmony with you. I pray, Father, that anyone here who is struggling with what's next on their faith journey, Lord, that they will take some action this week. They will be emboldened by something they've sung, something they've heard, someone with whom they have shared time. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 